Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Howdy again, WCC. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, I don't think I've ever mentioned Georgia football in a sermon, but I did want to congratulate Bulldog Nation, back-to-back championships. Uh, And that means a lot to me because, as most of you know, I've been a Georgia Bulldog fan my whole life. I'm the biggest fan. Actually, I went to Texas A&M. We pay our coach $12 million a year, and I think we got four wins, so we pay him like $3 million a win. So uh, anyway, go dogs. Um, congratulations. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and the title of today's sermon is A Better Priesthood. Better Priesthood. And I'm going to do a little review of last week's sermon when we talked about Melchizedek. But first, what I want to do is just go ahead and read Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 10, and get in our minds uh, what we're going to be talking about this morning, okay? So Hebrews 7, let's look at verses 1 to 10, and let's read it, and, uh, and then we'll go get into the text. All right, Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I almost never do a review of a sermon, but I want to do that today, because last Sunday... I gave you a lot of information about this guy they're talking about here, Melchizedek, and I want to review some of that. So here in chapter 7, the writer to the Hebrews is talking about Jesus being our great high priest. And this is out of all of the scriptures, if you want to go to find out the priesthood of Jesus, this is it, okay? So, and the writer is saying that Jesus' priesthood is better. It's better than the Old Testament priesthood. Because Jesus is not a priest from the order of Levi, which is the Old Testament priesthood. No, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And who's Melchizedek? That's what we talked about last week. Now, let me remind you that the writer to the Hebrews has already warned us that this stuff about Melchizedek is deep stuff. This is the meat of God's word. 
And when we hear about Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, for many of us, our reaction is, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care about this because we think, I don't see how it's relevant to my life at all. And we oftentimes we think, I've got real issues in my life that I need to deal with. And you're talking about Melchizedek? Seriously? So that's our tendency. So we tend to skip things in the Bible that don't seem to have some immediate application to our lives. And we move on to something else. We want verses we can put on a coffee mug, right? Like we want verses that we can put on a cross stitch. And I've never seen a coffee mug with Hebrews 7.10 on it that says he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him, right? So I've never seen a coffee mug like that, but hey, if you want a gift idea for me, you know, there you go. Um, So again, here in Hebrews, the writer has already said that this stuff is meat, that Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, this is the meat of God's word, and it requires you to really chew on it. And I acknowledge, I freely acknowledge that when you first read this, you say, I don't see any application to our lives. And oftentimes we just want to get an immediate blessing from a verse. We don't want to have to work at it. But one of, one of the great things about dealing with passages like this, with difficult passages like this, is they help us not to be selfish. Because if every passage, if every passage has, has to have some immediate application to me, then eventually we start to think it all has to revolve around me. But that shouldn't be our attitude. Our attitude should be, I want to know my Lord I want to know the true and living God. That's the goal. The goal is not for me always to get an immediate blessing. It's to know my Lord. What did Paul say? This is Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul said this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the goal, to know Christ. And I'm going to give you a secret here. You will know the Lord Jesus better if you make an effort to understand the stuff we're studying here in Hebrews 7. I promise. That's why we struggle with these difficult passages, to know our Lord. Because nothing compares to the infinite worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing. And that's what I want for us, to know Christ So we're going to be thinking about how Jesus is our high priest. And I've come to believe that Jesus being our high priest is one of the most important truths of Scripture. Because as our high priest, Jesus is our mediator. He's the only mediator between us and God the Father. Jesus is our high priest. He's on the throne. He's in the throne room of God, behind the veil, as it says in earlier part of Hebrews. He's behind the veil in the true sanctuary of heaven. And he hears our prayers. And he loves us. Also, priests pray for their people. That's what Jesus does for us. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. And we'll cover that in detail the next time I preach. But if you want to look down, look down at Hebrews 7.25. Look at Hebrews 7.25. The last part of that verse, very last, whatever, seven words of that says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. That's us. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, his people. Jesus makes intercession for us. That means he's constantly praying for us. And that's huge. 
This is a quote from, from a friend, a brother gave me this week, a quote from Robert Murray McShane, and I'm going to use it again in the future, but it says this. Think about what he's saying. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, if I could hear that, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference because Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for you right now. He is our great high priest, and understanding this helps us to know him better. Okay? So today, as I said, we're going to look at Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. We've already studied the first few verses, but as a reminder, the writer is explaining how Jesus is our high priest. And one of the passages that the writer has been explaining throughout this book is Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 says that the Messiah would be a king, he would sit on a throne, and Psalm 110 verse 4 has this prophecy about the Messiah. So this is in the days of David. It has this prophecy about the Messiah. It says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's Psalm 110. The, the Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this prophecy says that the Messiah would not be a priest from the order of Levi, which is the Old Testament priestly tribe. Psalm 110 says the Messiah would be a priest from a different priestly order, the order of Melchizedek. And the only thing we know about Melchizedek is from Genesis 14. And we looked at this last week. When Abraham is returning from winning a great battle and rescuing his nephew Lot, and when Abraham returned, he met this man named Melchizedek. And in Hebrews 7, if you want to look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 7, this is a description of Melchizedek. And it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem which later became Jerusalem, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So Melchizedek gave a priestly blessing to Abraham and Abraham gave a tithe as an offering to the king and priest Melchizedek. Now, what the writer to the Hebrews is stressing to us is that Melchizedek is a great man of God. Melchizedek had a personal relationship with the true and living God, Yahweh or Jehovah, as as he's called in the Old Testament. And I said this last week too, it it seems very possible, some of this is speculation, but it does seem very possible that Melchizedek could have been alive during the, the life of Noah and his son Shem. Okay, Noah and Shem were both on the ark. Again, this is speculation, but I even think it's possible that Melchizedek was taught by the true God, by Shem, and perhaps even Noah. Okay, I think that is really possible. Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere in Genesis 14, and then he disappears. And we never hear about him again. And the next time he appears is in Psalm 110, about a thousand years later. And those are the only two times in the Old Testament that we read about Melchizedek. But now here in Hebrews, the writer is telling us that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay, and this is the point of this. Melchizedek is a figure who provides a picture of what Jesus the Messiah would look like. So Melchizedek is a type. He is a type of Christ. That is, he is a picture of a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. And part of the way that he is foreshadowing Christ is that Melchizedek is a king. He's king of Salem, and Melchizedek is a priest. So Melchizedek is both a priest and king. This didn't happen in the Old Testament. They weren't allowed. They were separate. 
Kings were from the tribe of Judah. Priests were from the tribe of Levi, and a king was not allowed to do priestly duties. But Melchizedek is both a priest and a king, and this is what Jesus is. Just like the prophecy in Psalm 110 says, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's both a king and a priest. Now, I mentioned this last week, I don't think Melchizedek is an appearance of God, which is called a, a, a theophany or a Christophany. And I don't think Melchizedek is a theophany for a number of reasons. One of this, he holds this political title of a real place. He's the king of Salem, which, as I mentioned, became Jerusalem. Also, if you look at verse 3, it says Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Other translations say that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. So to me, being made like the Son of God, that sounds like Melchizedek is not actually the Son of God. You can also see we're not going to cover it today, but if you look down at verse 15, there's a passage in there where it says, the end of that says, another priest, this is, this, is, uh, this is talking about Jesus, another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So verse 3 says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Verse 15 says that Jesus is a priest who arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. All these statements to me seem to be saying that Melchizedek and Jesus are different people. Okay, Jesus is the son of God. He's God incarnate. Melchizedek, I believe, is just a man. I think Melchizedek was just a human being. He was an actual king and priest. But, again, he was a great man of God. He was a worshiper of the true and living God. He was a worshiper of El Elyon. We talked about this last week. God Most High, El Elyon. And I believe that Melchizedek even taught Abraham about our God being most high God, because Abraham starts using that phrase, El Elyon, afterwards. And when it says in Hebrews 7, 3, that Melchizedek was out without father or mother or genealogy, I think it means that in the scriptures, there's no record of Melchizedek's father or mother or genealogy. It's the same way in verse 3. It says that Melchizedek, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, I think it's saying that he has no beginning of days nor end of life as recorded in scripture. There's no record of Melchizedek's mom or dad or his birth or death, okay? So that's, we, we covered all that last time. All right, let's pick up in Hebrews 7, verse 4. And as I said, today's sermon is called A Better Priesthood because what Hebrews is teaching is that Jesus' priesthood is better than the Old Testament priesthood because Jesus' priesthood is from the order of Melchizedek. And what the writer is going to show is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And that may be hard for us to believe, but that's what the writer's saying. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So look at Hebrews 7, verse 4. The first few words of that verse say this. See how great this man was. See how great this man was. The word see can also be translated as observe or consider or behold or even think, like contemplate. Uh, The NIV says just think. Okay, so just think how great he was, or behold, or see how great this man was. The Greek word behind this is theoreo, theoreo, and it looks like theory, and that's where we get the word theory. So a theory is an idea, something we think about, so we're supposed to think about Melchizedek, about how great a man he was. The Greek word theoreo also is where we get the word theater, okay? No, the British is theatra. That sounds better, right? Uh, and in a theater or theatra, people observe or concentrate on a performance, right? So in a theater, you're concentrating on a performance. That's what we're told to do here, to observe, to concentrate on Melchizedek 
and look attentively at how great a man he was. So just think about how great Melchizedek was. And the writer is going to say that Melchizedek's priesthood is better than Levi's priesthood. Levi was a descendant of Abraham. And Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and that means Melchizedek's priesthood is better than the priesthood of Abraham's descendant Levi, okay? So again, how is the, now he's, he's trying to persuade us that Melchizedek's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Well, how is that the case? Well, he gives us three reasons, and I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, but three reasons why Melchizedek's priesthood is better. Number one, Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. Number two, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. And number three, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So number one is Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. I'm just going to touch on this briefly because later in the chapter in Hebrews, the writer is going to develop this fully. But right now, just know that there is a sense in which, I'm probably going to keep saying that, there is a sense in which Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. If you look at the end of verse 3, and it's talking about Melchizedek, it says it's that phrase about resembling the Son of God. It says, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Unlike the Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests, which focused, they focused on genealogy. And with Melchizedek, there's no record of his death in the Bible. So there's no record of his priesthood ending, okay? So that's what the, the writer is using. He's using the, the account of Scripture to show that there's no record of Melchizedek dying. That means there's no record in the Bible of Melchizedek's priesthood ending. So he takes that and he says this shows that in a sense Melchizedek's priesthood never ends because the Bible never says that it ends. Okay? His priesthood is eternal. That's a figurative way of thinking about it, but that's what the writer is doing for us. And also, as he said, he's really tying it in with Psalm 110. That's the explicit statement, which says that the Messiah was a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. That's what he's saying. And this is a picture, of course, of Jesus' priesthood. Jesus' priesthood is an eternal priesthood. So again, we're asking the question, that's number one, we're asking the question, why is Melchizedek's priesthood better than the Old Testament priesthood? Number one, Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. Again, he's going to talk about that more later on. Number two is this, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. If you, if you notice in that passage, there is a huge amount of stress placed on the fact that Abraham gave a tenth or gave a tithe to Melchizedek. If you look at verse 4, it says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And then in verse 5, he's describing how the Levitical priest received a tithe from the people. So verse 5 says, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these, though these also are descended from Abraham. What does this mean? It means this, that the Levites did not receive any land. God did not apportion any land to the Levites. Instead, they were to receive their income from their brothers in Israel. So the people of Israel were to pay tithes to the Levitical priests. So the Levitical priests had this high honor of serving God, ministering in the sanctuary, ministering in the temple. They were priests, okay? They had this exalted place. And part of the honor of being priests was that they received tithes. So the Old Testament 
priests had this exalted position to lead worship, and God commanded the people to pay the priests a tithe. That's all this is saying here. But this man, Melchizedek, who was a priest, he received a tithe from Abraham. So this shows that Melchizedek had a more exalted position than Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to the priest Melchizedek. It also means that because Melchizedek is a priest, Abraham's paying tithes to him. Melchizedek has a greater priesthood than the descendants of Abraham who were priests, okay? Look at verse 6. It says, but this man, Melchizedek, does not have his descent from them. In other words, Melchizedek is not a Jew. He was not a descendant of Abraham. And yet, and the verse continues, it says, he, Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So this, this phrase, blessed him who had the promises, Abraham is the one who received the promises from God. For example, God promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham. God also promised that Abraham would have countless descendants. So Abraham was the father of the people of Israel, the patriarch, as it's called in verse 4. I skipped over that, but if you look at verse 4, he's called Abraham the patriarch. Okay, So when the writer mentions here in verse 6 that Abraham had the promises of God, he's stressing the fact that it was through Abraham that God established his saving purpose for Israel. And for all the nations of the world. It was through Abraham. He had the promises. So the writer's saying that Abraham the patriarch was great because he had the promises of God. But here in Hebrews 7, we're told that Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. And you can see Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Abraham gave a sacrificial offering of a tenth or a tithe to Melchizedek the priest. If you go down to verse 8... It says, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. Mortal men. He's talking about the Levitical priests. They're mortal. In fact, not only they're mortal, but their genealogy records their deaths. That's a big thing with with the Old Testament. Their genealogy, mom and dad, when they were born and died and all that, especially with the priesthood. He goes on and says, but in the other case, Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So it's saying in one case, tithes are received by the mortal Levitical priests. They all died. But in the other case, tithes are received by Melchizedek, of whom it is testified that he lives. It's kind of a strange statement, but this, when it says Melchizedek is the one of whom it is testified that he lives, notice the writer doesn't actually say that Melchizedek lives forever. He doesn't say that. He says it is testified that he lives so again, the writer is saying there's no, re- again, he's stressing this again, there's no record in the scriptures of Melchizedek dying, okay? That's all it is. So in, a, so in the Bible, in, the, in a sense, the Bible is testifying that Melchizedek still lives. It's an odd way, I understand it's an odd way of arguing, but that's the way he's saying it. The Bible doesn't say that Melchizedek dies, so he's saying that it is testified, the Bible testifies that he lives, So again, what he's saying in verse 8 is the Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal because the biblical account has no record of him dying and no record of his priesthood ever ending. Again, this is the meat of God's word, right? We're trying to figure out his argument here. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, one might even say, that's a key phrase, one might even say that Levi himself 
who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Again, this is one of these kind of weird statements. In the, notice the writer even recognizes that it's kind of weird because that's why he says one might even say, or your translation might, might say, so to speak, okay? He's saying Levi was a descendant of Abraham, so you could say that Levi was in the body of Abraham when Abraham met Melchizedek, or Levi was in the body of Abraham, so to speak, when Abraham met Melchizedek. Again, it seems odd to us, but in Bible times, people thought of a person containing within himself, this is the way they thought, within that person was all his children and grandchildren and descendants. That's the way they thought of a person. Uh, That all of our descendants are in some way in our bodies right now. It seems weird, but there's some logic to it, right? Because when we think of DNA and how it's passed on and all that. Okay. So verses 9 and 10 really aren't complicated. It's just saying that Levi the priest, in a sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek the priest because Levi was a descendant of Abraham. So he says, so you could even say that Levi was in the body of his ancestor Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's all it's saying, all right? Let me give you a little footnote here that I find interesting. Some of you may not find it interesting, but I, I like it. I enjoy what is called apologetics, that is proof or evidence for the faith. And here's something I think is important. It has to do with the date of when the book of Hebrews was written. Skeptics of Christianity often claim that the New Testament was written centuries after Jesus' earthly ministry. So critics of the New Testament will say that, that the, New, the New Testament was written like hundreds of years after Jesus was on earth. And the reason they say that, the reason they want the New Testament written hundreds of years after Jesus' ministry is because if the New Testament, and I'm convinced it is, if the New Testament is written within just a few decades after Jesus' earthly ministry, if the New Testament was written in a very short period of time after Jesus' earthly ministry, then that's huge evidence that what we're reading is true, especially when we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, So the date of these books is really important. Because, and if the New Testament is all written within a short period of time after Jesus' earthly ministry, that means that there weren't enough time, there wasn't enough time for myths and fables to develop. Because myths and fables just cannot develop in just a few decades. It takes centuries for myths to develop. So dating the New Testament books is really important. Well, think about this, and this is what I'm getting to, in, and you'll notice it in the book of Hebrews, the, the tense of the word being used, Okay. Because this is important. Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. After 70 AD, the Levitical priests were not performing priestly duties anymore. There's no Levitical priesthood after 70 AD. The temple's gone. They're not receiving tithes. They're not doing any duties at all. Okay? They're not offering sacrifices. The whole sacrificial system was destroyed. So there is no Levitical priesthood functioning after 70 AD. But if you notice something in Hebrews 7, and you see this even clearer in chapter 9, the writer, when he's talking here, he's using the present tense when he's describing the priests. Like in verse 5, it says, look at verse 5, it says, those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, who received present tense, have a commandment in the law to take tithes, present tense, from the people. If you go down to verse 8, again, it says, in the one case, tithes are received Present tense, okay? Tithes are received by mortal men, not were received. 
Verse 9, Levi, it says Levi himself, in other words, all the Levitical priests, who receives tithes, present tense, not used to receive tithes. Okay, everything's in the present tense. And why I'm talking about this is because, so the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, as I'm writing this, the Levitical priests are still receiving tithes. They're still performing their duties. The Levitical priesthood, he's saying in an implicit way, the Levitical priesthood is still going strong. Okay? So as I said, but as I said, the Levitical priesthood ended in 70 AD. So I think this is one of the little subtle proofs that the book of Hebrews was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In fact, this is just me personally, but I'm convinced that the entire New Testament was written before 70 AD because there's no account ever in the New Testament of Jerusalem being destroyed, of the temple being destroyed. And that was an earth-shattering event, and there's no mention of it in the New Testament. So I think the entire New Testament was written before 70 AD. All right? Okay, just some food for thought. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. Remember, the whole point of this section is to show that Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. And that Melchizedek's priesthood is better than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And so the writer's saying, just think. Think about how great Melchizedek was. And he gives us three reasons. We've looked at one, Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. Uh, Number two, we just looked at this, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. And here's number three, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham. And what he's saying is that that shows that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Abraham. Go to verses 6 and 7. Hebrews 7, verses 6 and 7. It says, but this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, from the Jewish people, Melchizedek wasn't Jewish, but Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and blessed him. Abraham blessed him who had the promises. In verse 7, he says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. When it says the inferior is blessed by the superior, here's what this means. It's talking about an official blessing on someone. Now, blessing can have multiple meanings. Sometimes it can be used for the word praise, like bless the Lord, right? Bless the Lord on my soul. Well, that's saying praise the Lord. So that's, that's one way the Bible uses bless to praise. But there's also a way that a person bestows sort of an official blessing on someone else. And it's a big deal in the scriptures. In those cases, the superior one, the person with more authority, the higher up one, the superior one will bestow a blessing on the inferior. That's what the writer's saying in verse 7. The inferior is blessed by the superior. So the inferior is under the one who is the superior in terms of authority. And the inferior receives a blessing from the superior. If you've ever read the story of Isaac with Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau were his two sons. Well, there's this account of Isaac giving an official blessing on Jacob. And you can see to them, as they fight and haggle and lie and all this stuff about it, you can see how important it was to receive this official blessing from your father. Okay, So the father would bestow an official blessing on one of his sons. So again, the superior would bestow a blessing on the inferior. And here in Hebrews, the writer is explaining that Melchizedek bestowed this official blessing on Abraham. That's what happened in Genesis 14. We looked at it last week. So Abraham offered a tribute to Melchizedek. He paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Abraham paid homage to Melchizedek, showing that he is a higher authority. And then Melchizedek bestowed a blessing on Abraham. And because Melchizedek bestowed a blessing on Abraham, this shows that Melchizedek was superior. He was more exalted than 
Abraham. So again, what the writer is saying, that both in, in tithes and in blessing, we can see that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That's the whole point of this thing, to show that Melchizedek is greater and that his priesthood is greater than the priesthood of Levi, who is a descendant of Abraham. And remember, again, the whole point is pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, the prophecy from Psalm 110 about the Messiah. And so this shows that Jesus' priesthood is much better than the Levitical priesthood. And what the author is going to say in the next part of Hebrews 7 is that the priesthood of Christ fulfills and replaces the Levitical priesthood. The writer is going to say in the last part of chapter 7 that the Old Testament priesthood was really a preparation, just a preparation pointing forward to the ultimate revelation of God's saving plan, which is found only in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the bottom line for today is that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and the writer just keeps pressing this point. And it's hard for us, right, when we think about how awesome Abraham was, father of the faith. And for someone to say that Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, that sounds strange to us, but that's his point. That's why he keeps laboring this and stressing it and trying to prove it, okay? All right, that's all we're going to look at today, but I want to wrap up with this. I want to go back to verse 2 and look at that verse again. This is talking about Melchizedek. And again, think about Melchizedek pointing forward to Jesus. Okay, let's go to Hebrews 7, 2. And we're going to think about Melchizedek and and how he points forward to to Jesus. So in in Hebrews 7, 2, there's a... It starts out with, he is first, okay? It goes on for a little bit, but then when it says, he, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So king of righteousness is his name, Melech Zedek, Melech is king, Zedek is uh, righteousness, and then he is also in his position, king of Salem. Salem is Shalom, so he's king of peace. Now, again, this is talking about Melchizedek, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're going to put up two slides. We're going to put up a slide with two verses. I'm going to ask the guys to put up that verse. It has Hebrews 7, 2 and Romans 5, 1. There's a huge connection between these verses, okay? And you may not see it initially, but I want you to work with me on this, all right? There's a big, big connection between Hebrews 7, 2 and Romans 5, 1. So just look at the verse, and I've got the highlighted things about righteousness and peace in Hebrews 7.2, and then Romans 5.1, justified in peace in Romans 5.1. A couple of months ago, I preached a sermon on justification. I don't say it, but if you remember, do you remember what justification or justify means? It means this. When the Bible talks about justification, it means to declare righteous, okay, or being declared righteous by God. So when we put our faith in Jesus, God declares us to be righteous. And it's based on, not our own righteousness, it's based on what is called an alien righteousness, an outside righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we're going to put up one last slide. It has the same two verses, and I'm going to offer, I'm going to include the explanation on justification. So we can put that up. So we're going to take that, now look at the explanation in Romans 5.1 with the explanation of what justification means. So look at Hebrews 7, 2. It says, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, first king of righteousness, and then he's also king of, Pe- of Salem, that is king of peace. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, which means what? Declared 
righteous, based on the righteousness of Jesus, by faith, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask you just to keep the slide up for the rest of the sermon. In the Bible, many places, there is a huge connection between righteousness and peace. And that means, in the mind of God, there's a huge connection between righteousness and peace. And it's in this order. It's righteousness first and then peace. And we can see that in both of these verses. Now remember, Melchizedek is pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was, in a small way, the king of righteousness. And he was the king of peace, king of Salem, right? King of Shalom. But Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Because Jesus is the true king of righteousness, and he's the true king of peace. Again, look at Romans 5.1. God the Father declares us righteous based on Jesus's righteousness, and what's the result? We have peace with God. We have peace with God through Christ. This is the result. It's righteousness and then peace with God. The only way we can have peace with God is if we have Jesus's righteousness. That's it. If God declares us righteous based on Jesus's righteousness, only then do we have peace with God. We get Christ's righteousness, and on the cross, here's the incredible thing, on the cross, he got our sin, and he got the judgment that should have come to us. Our sin went to Jesus on the cross, and his righteousness, if you put your faith in him, came to us. It was this great exchange that happened on the cross. So Jesus, the king of righteousness, without sin, went to the cross for us rebels. And Jesus exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And the result is we have peace with God. We get Christ's righteousness, and then we have peace with God. And I want to stress this. You have no hope of peace with God unless you come to him through Jesus Christ. Unless you are declared righteous based on Jesus' righteousness. So peace and righteousness go hand in hand. And you can't have peace with God unless you have Jesus' righteousness credited to your account. You have no hope of peace with God unless, unless you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in the sight of God. He sees us, right? And you can only be clothed in Christ's righteousness if you put your faith in him. If you turn over the controls of your life to Jesus and tell him this, and we should be telling him this every day of our lives. Jesus, I give you my life. You're in control, Lord. Use my life any way you choose. I trust you completely. That should be us every single day. And that's, requi- that's what requ- is required to come to him by faith. But the good news of the gospel is this. If you come to, f- to Jesus in faith, he will never reject you. Never. He will never cast you away. Jesus said this in John six thirty seven. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is saying, whoever comes to him in faith, he will never reject. Never. He will never turn you away. And that means if we put our faith in Christ, we are eternally at peace with God. We're not at war with God anymore. We're at peace. He's our father. He adopts us into the family. He loves us. And Jesus is our savior. And Jesus is the king of righteousness 
because he's the king of peace. And this is the only way we can be in a loving and peaceful relationship with God through the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the Lord Jesus. So church, I would ask you to rejoice in that. If you haven't put your faith in him, do it. Give your life to him. If you have, let's rejoice in the fact that when the father looks at us, he doesn't see our filth and sin. He doesn't even see it. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness. When the father looks at us, he's not angry at us. We have peace with God. And it doesn't matter what we do. God loves us. And his love does not change based on our performance. We have peace with God Because we have the king of peace. We have peace with God because we have the king of peace. And he's all we need. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Father, thank you for sending your son to live among us, to live the life that we couldn't live, to fulfill all righteousness. And then because of his righteousness, we now have peace with you, Father. Jesus, we thank you for being our Savior, for being the King of righteousness, and for bringing us rebels to yourself through faith. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd work in hearts even now, and that they would, Holy Spirit, that you would guide people to behold Christ, to truly behold our Lord Jesus, and see how great he was. And help us, Lord, again, to work with these things like in Hebrews 7, understand that Melchizedek is this great man and in some way a king of righteousness and a king of peace, but it's meant to point to Jesus Christ. And that's what we want, Lord, is to know you. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Everything else is nothing compared to that. So let that that be our heart, Lord. Let us be people who rejoice in the fact, Lord Jesus, that you are king. Let us be people who bow the knee to you to every, day, every single day, give up controls of our lives to you and just give it over to you and live for you in obedience and faith and want to please you. And thank you for being our king of righteousness. Thank you for dying in our place on the cross and thereby bringing us to God the Father and being our king of priests. So we love you and praise you, Lord. Be honored. Holy Spirit, again, we ask that you work in hearts. Allow people to see, allow all of us just to see how glorious our Lord Jesus is. And it's in his name we pray, amen.